It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. When it comes to work, there's plenty of things to annoy us. The open office plan, long commutes, too many emails. But for a lot of people, the most annoying part of the workplace is other people. But we all have to get along. So how do you deal with people you hate at work? This is Game Plan. Hi, I'm Francesca Levy. And I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And this week, we are going to talk about everyone we hate at the office. Just kidding. We're not. But we are <laughs> We are going to talk about some of the types of people that it's easy to become enemies with at work. Um, and before we get into it, I have a disclaimer. We uh, interview a guest this week whose book title has a profane word in it. And we can't really talk about the book without using the word. So we're going to use it a lot. So maybe this isn't one to listen to with kids. Let's start with why we end up hating people at work. I think work is a microcosm for society as a whole. You know, you have a group of people thrown together and we all have to exist together and inevitably there will be conflict. Yeah. And I think, though, in other parts of your life, you do have a little bit more choice in who you're in that society with. So like, I mean, I mentioned at the very top, the, the open office, but that's like a little powder keg in its own way because everybody's sort of really in each other's face. You can see everyone, you can hear everyone. And then it's the people that you're around. They're ideally, they're selected for how good they are at their jobs, not necessarily how well they get along with you. Yeah. It, it almost seems like the workplace is designed for maximum annoyance with people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you throw in, you know, some work stress. Sometimes you have long hours. You might have to work on a project with someone and it's just like too much contact, stressful situations and people who are all different personality types and might not get along. Or you have competing interests and agendas that might contradict someone else's. Yeah. That goes to your like microcosm of society theory. It's like yeah. a little feudal land where everyone's trying to advance their own kingdom. Yeah. It reminds me of like the Leviathan or something. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say Game of Thrones, but yeah, you yeah, went yeah. There. Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones. No, no, no. Literary. I like it. So you develop coping strategies for dealing with people you don't like or you should. I mean, I don't know how good I am at it, but one thing I tend to do is vent. Do you find venting helpful? I am a master venter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you vent to people in your personal life or just like other people at work about the people that you both don't like? Or It's hard because... To vent to people at work, you have to know where their allegiances are. Yeah. You know, you have to feel out if it's okay to gossip with them about yeah. the person near you who you think is evil. But once you <laughs> but once you do do that and you've like caught their, you know, eye roll at the meeting and you and you feel like it's kind of safe to talk to them, I feel like 
often for me, venting at work, it starts out good because it's like, oh, finally, I found somebody who agrees with me that this person is really annoying in meetings. But then you can go so far with it that it becomes like that becomes your whole relationship with that person that all you ever do is complain about people. And then suddenly there's like a negative tinge to it. Do yeah. you ever find yes, that? Yes, yes. Um, and of course, there's research on gossiping at work. And it's kind of mixed. Um, some of it has found that gossiping can be good for the workplace, which makes me feel a lot better. Yeah. Feels like I'm really, you know, <laughs> participating in work and making it a better place. But one of the studies looked at how gossiping can be good if it's a way to increase information flow in an organization where there isn't very much. So if like your manager isn't doing a good job communicating things to you, if the underlings gossip about it, it can make it a better workplace. Oh, that sounds sort of sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like it's good in bad workplaces. The places where the gossip is bad is where employees are so cynical about work that all they do is gossip and it can harm their productivity, which I also feel. Yeah. I feel like the first kind of gossiping where it's like information sharing can can maybe lead to the second kind. Like yeah. the good kind can become the Fine bad line. kind. Yeah. So gossiping is not a catch-all solution. Um, and also, you probably need different strategies for dealing with different types of enemies at work. The worst person to not get along with at work, I think, is your boss. So you can be a bad boss in a few ways. I find it's really hard to deal with absentee managers. Like, this is something that sounds like it should be kind of nice because it's like, oh, the cat's away. You know, <laughs> your boss doesn't care what you do. But actually, it can get in the way of projects getting done. It can end up making you look bad. And it's like when you have a boss who's supposed to be helping you understand what your job is and how well you're doing and they're not there for you in that way, it, it just for me, it just makes me so frustrated and kind of depressed. Yeah, I think having an absentee boss it makes you good at being an absentee employee yeah. which is could be nice sometimes like yeah. if you want to take a long weekend and not have anyone notice but it doesn't make you good at work no and most people i think like want to make something of their time when they're at work but then there's the complete opposite of the absentee manager and that's the micromanager um which i don't think anybody likes like i've never heard anybody say like my ideal work environment yeah. is to be micromanaged um but to me, when people micromanage, when people just like get in your business about every single thing you're doing, it's a sign they don't trust you. And they also it's a weird attitude to go into work with that, like all of the people who report to you are kind of secretly trying to get one over on you. You know, like they want to be late on deadlines and they want to you know, they're not acting in good faith and they don't have good reasons for not getting things done on time. And I'd rather just trust people and occasionally be like, OK, there's a thing that you need to get better at. I was reading about one workplace where micromanaging was to the extreme. It made me so uncomfortable. But the the boss made his employees tell them when they were going to lunch. He got mad at them when they stepped away from their desks or saw that their chat light went red. Yeah. Um, but also rewarded employees for ratting each other out and would give people $500 bonuses for calling out bad behavior. What? That's exactly the kind of like untrusting environment that micromanaging sows. I hate that. That sounds terrible. But the two types of bosses you're talking about fall into like the two types of bad boss categories that um, researchers have found. So there's like the dysfunctional bad boss, which I think is kind of the absentee manager. It's like a bad boss who's just bad at their job. Right. <laughs> and then there's what they call the dark bad boss, which is kind Ooh. of like the evil bad boss, which to me is kind of what the micromanager 
is. Yeah. Like kind of Machiavellian or... Yeah, someone who has bad intentions. Like, I think you can solve a lot of those problems as a manager by just feeling like you and your team are all sort of working toward the same goal. On a team. On a team. So let's talk about some other kinds of enemies or people we hate at work. Yeah, because it's not just your bosses. Right. It's the people you work with. Yeah, you also end up hating often. (laughs) I have you're a kind person who just likes everybody. I guess there are those people. (laughs) I have a particular dislike for this one type of person that I am going to call the trophy collector. This is somebody who basically only does the work that is the most visible. So will perform being good at work. You know, we'll send out emails about all the great things they've done or we'll do something if they know it's going to get them accolades or if people in, in, you know, higher up positions are going to notice it. And those people also tend to kind of slack off on the work that's behind the scenes because a lot of getting real work done is doing stuff that goes unrewarded and also helping out your colleagues. Like you see somebody's underwater and you're just like, hey, I can take that over for you. You're not going to necessarily get praise for doing that. Your colleague might even get the credit. But over time, it sort of evens out and you, you're working in good faith. But these, there's a certain type of person where it's like, it makes it even worse that they don't do that because they're getting celebrated for all of this really high profile stuff that they are doing. When I've worked with people like that in the past it has driven me crazy it kind of reminds me of this advice that you see a lot online which is like nobody's gonna remember you for the emails you sent like they'll remember you for the things that your name is on and I I get that advice where it's like you know don't you don't need to put all of your work into writing emails but it's also like sometimes work that nobody sees as part of work and yeah it sucks. You, it's like you have to be a particular type of person who's willing to pick up that work. But but, you know, the office doesn't move forward unless there are people who are willing to do that invisible work. Yeah. Don't like that person. So those are some types of people that annoy us at work. But what about the ultimate work enemy? The asshole. Like this is a very broad and yes, profane word uh, that could mean a lot of things. So we want to break down what we're talking about when we say someone's an asshole and figure out how you can survive working with them. So we consulted an expert. Bob Sutton is a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford. He wrote the widely acclaimed book, The No Asshole Rule, and just came out with its follow-up, The Asshole Survival Guide. So let's jump right in. What is your definition of an asshole? Ooh. So my definition of an asshole is kind of at your ear and in your brain, not at the other person's mouth or whatever. It's uh, it's that feeling that someone has left you feeling uh, demeaned, de-energized, uh, disrespected, oppressed. They make you feel like dirt. That's my definition. Yeah, so that sounds like a a personal affront is what makes someone it's very personal well, yes and and the reason that i define it that way is there's so many different behaviors in so many different organizational cultures um that um what's bad behavior in one might be good behavior in the other so just let's just take interrupting there's some organizational cultures where you just stop and you let the other person talk and you don't interrupt and then there's ones that are sort of crazy businesses type, where if you're not interrupting, you don't get in your word edgewise. And so whether or not you're feeling hurt is a big part of it. And 
we could list behaviors that are asshole behaviors. We could talk about there's different kind of things that tend to set people off. But, uh, but to me, owning your feelings is a big part of it. It's a little bit in the eye of the beholder. Yep. Um, you mentioned in your book that, that there's kind of a assholes finish first mythology. Where do yeah. you think that came from? And, and is there any truth to it? Yes, there is. Um, I would start with the headline that if you're an asshole and a winner, you're still a loser in my book because you're doing so much damage to other people. The, the, there's a very specific kind of situation where people finish first if they leave others feeling demeaned and de-energized. When it's a zero-sum game, and, and the way we play the game is by just stomping on others. So uh, to use examples of cultures, uh, the old Merrill Lynch culture, the old Microsoft culture, that's how the game was played there. But the problem is that's the way that individuals get ahead. And all the evidence is that if you stomp on others on the way to the top, you undermine the performance of the people around you and your overall organization. So sometimes winners do finish first, but they end up running loser organizations and creating losers around them. You mentioned that some things might make one person feel demeaned or insulted or at another company just be the the company culture or the way people talk to each other and it's fine. So how do you as an individual determine how bad the problem is if you think you have a coworker like this? That's really an interesting question. And, And by nature, this is human psychology. There's subjectivity to it. And uh, to me, there's the cultural part, and then there's the part that you sort of own. The cultural part we've already talked about is that an insult in one culture is just everyday life in the other. And the other part is that some of us are more thin-skinned than others. The fact is, uh, my wife used to be managing partner of a large law firm, and her advice is, uh, if you're going to survive in a large law firm, you better have a pretty thick skin, because you're just not going to make it, because people are going to insult you, they're going to ignore you, your clients are going to yell at you. This is what it's like being a lawyer in a large law firm. But I don't know, if you were going to work in a a yoga studio, such behavior might not be uh, quite as as I think that's why lawyers open yoga studios, but that's another that's another um, side story. Um, so so there's that part, and for me, the the main way in a lot of the problem when you have asshole problems is to have people in your life who essentially can tell you whether you're crazy or not. In a lot of ways, whether or not you have an asshole problem and should do something about it, a lot of it is having friends, coworkers around you who can help you assess your situation. So you should run it by your, your inner circle and make sure that you're, you're checking whether your feelings are, are accurate. Yeah, and, and, and also it's this notion that um, sometimes there's a problem where somebody is treating you like dirt and they just hate you and they're nice to everybody else. And I would call that, a, you've kind of got an interpersonal conflict problem or one of the biggest problems is you've got an equal opportunity asshole or somebody who just doesn't like women or just doesn't like uh, people who aren't white or something. And then you've got a different sort of problem than if it's just somebody who is out to get you, which happens sometimes in life. You mentioned earlier, though, that there are generic asshole behaviors. Can you get into some of those things? I would break it into three categories. The first category is open, kind of in-your-face, treating you like dirt. So the flick cigarette or, uh, or calling you an obscenity would do. The second, backstabbing. In, in the book, there's a local Silicon Valley CEO I interviewed, and he described how he had a grin So what a grin would be is this guy, yes, boss, I'll do whatever you want. That's a great idea. 
And then he would badmouth the boss and screw up the implementation of it and then go blame somebody else. So, so that's that kind of asshole. And that, and that requires a different kind of situation because you kind of got to do recognizance. Um, and then the third kind are people who treat you as if you're a completely irrelevant object, as if you're part of the furniture. And, it, and if you have a boss or a coworker who just treats you like you're invisible, that's actually really painful, that you don't matter at all. One of the solutions that you suggest in your book is just to quit. And I I wonder why, I mean, it's not always possible to quit, but when it is, why does that solution not not seem available to people? First of all, there are some people who really can't quit. So uh, one of the examples I have in the book is uh, a woman who was clerking for a federal judge and was one year into a two-year clerkship, and uh, she looked at her option that just wasn't going to work. But then there's the kind of people who are in denial Next year, it'll get better. Um, she's promised me she's going to stop do it, doing it, even though your boss has promised you that uh, she's going to stop screaming at you 25 times. So why would they stop the 26th time? My favorite one, and I'm one of mine, I just have to finish this one project. And there's always another project. But um, the, the fact is that although I'm very careful to give people the advice, my main advice about quitting is don't be stupid, don't burn your bridges, and don't quit if you can't feed your children or something like that. Um, but um, the, the way I think about it is it's sort of like uh, people say quitters should be punished. But if somebody's hitting you with a hammer, maybe you should walk away from it and not walk back into that room where you're being hit with a hammer. So there's a point where it, it might be time to quit. But my motto is don't be stupid about it. Try to figure out what your options are and don't burn your bridges unless necessary. Are there other coping mechanisms that you suggest before getting to the point of quitting? There's lots of things you can do. So there's one set of strategies that I call a distancing or avoidance strategy. So to me, it's kind of like uh, the assholeism is kryptonite, and your goal is to avoid as much exposure to it as possible. So leaving meetings early would be an example. Uh, I don't buy into the general notion that Steve Jobs was always an asshole. Nonetheless, somebody told me who worked for him for years that he always would make sure not to sit next to Steve during meetings or to get in the elevator with him. There's also one of my favorite techniques is uh, I call it the rhythm method, but it's the notion that um, if you've got somebody in your life who wants to meet with you a lot and sends you all these emails and they're like really nasty, uh, that what you do is you kind of meet as rarely as possible and wait for those six or seven emails, wait maybe a week or two and then answer them all at once. And that does a couple of things. One, it reduces your exposure. The other thing is, and we haven't talked much about different sort of assholes, but there's a certain type of assholes, probably ones who have Machiavellian personality, if you look at the research, who they're not clueless. The reason they treat you like dirt is that their brain lights up when they see you suffer. And if you've got that sort of asshole, like giving them less reinforcement, it's just like giving a rat fewer pellets, that at least you're slowing the, the reinforcement. So, so th- there's those kind. And then there's a whole nother set of, uh, of coping mechanisms that are based on kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is you can't change your environment, but you change the way that you perceive it. So a couple of quick examples. Uh, one of my favorite ones, which is evidence-based, is called temporal distancing. And what that means is when somebody's treating you like dirt, it could be a customer, it could be a year into a two-year internship, you imagine that um, it's in the future and you're looking back on it and it's not so bad. So by shifting time focus, that helps. 
And then the other one is finding some way to become more emotionally detached from it so you kind of feel like you're not there. One of my favorite stories, one of my friends, her name's Becky Margiata. Um, and so Becky, when she was a, a first-year plebe at West Point, so if you know West Point, they're going to yell at you and haze you every day. And Becky's is the 80s. And yet every day, some upperclassman would walk up to her and ask her what was on the front page of the New York Times that day. And if she couldn't recite it, she'd get screamed at and told how stupid she was. And the way that she coped with it was by imagining that these people were clever comedians and she just thought they were so funny so it was sort of like watching a movie and not taking it personally. And I, I thought that was brilliant. Those strategies are fascinating. So much about how we work is just learning how to not take things personally. Um, you have another strategy that you, you I think, were writing about in terms of the, the type of asshole who uh, treats you like the furniture that you mentioned oh. earlier, which is hiding in plain sight. Can you explain what that is? Oh, well, so one way to think about it, there's actually research on TSA agents and one of the things that you'll do if there's you're in a, an asshole intensive environment and let going through the security screening might be it's a very asshole intensive environment and sometimes in those situations you just don't want to be noticed so you're sort of the strategy is to sort of embrace if there's a if there's a neglectful manager say the strategy is sort of to embrace not being noticed because you might be in for worse oh, oh ab absolutely um and 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 that's also one of the classic things and I don't no, they've been in a workplace like this, but I have where part of the executive assistant's job is to tell you when the boss is coming and whether the boss is in a bad mood or not. And under those situations, you just want to be at your desk and not be noticed if he or she is storming through, sort of flaming everybody. So one of those situations where not being noticed when an asshole is in the mood is a pretty good defense move. Some of the TSA uh, folks would say that they would try to dress in unflashy ways and not to become too interesting at work so they wouldn't be noticed by their supervisors. Some of the research brought that out. Wow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Listening to some of the strategies, it, it sounds hard sometimes, like you have to reframe your entire way of looking at things. Do you have any coping mechanisms for people who just want to, you know, take care of themselves when they're in this situation, oh. if you can't become resilient and strong and this perfect person who isn't scared of an asshole? Well, I, I, I think that all of us are reasonably scared of, of assholes. And um, it, for me, if, if you can't uh, do the reframing is very difficult, that cognitive behavioral therapy, although it works, takes a while and having people who can support you and it helps. But that's why I go back to a lot of the strategies where you're simply avoiding the amount of contact that you have with the asshole. Hopefully that will help. And, th and then the other sort of thing, and there's, there's interesting research on temporary detachment. If you can, just for example, in all of us, like we have our phones and we can't resist looking at our phones. If you cannot look at your email and not think about uh, your job during the week and detach. There, there's pretty good evidence that people can separate from work, um, have better mental health than those of us who are always on 24 hours a day, which is more and more difficult for all of us, of course. 
Yeah, we talk about that a lot, um, the need to do that. I just want to wrap up with one final question. Um, From all of this work you've done, all the research you've reviewed on the different types of people who can make your life miserable, why do you think we end up working with so many people like this? Why do so many assholes Uh, walk among us? uh, Well, some of it you could laid to personality, but I think a lot of it is because of the nature of the workplaces we have uh, these days in particular, but in general, you think about it. If you want to uh, create a laboratory experiment where you create jerks, what do you do? Uh, well, you put people under time pressure. You create differences between the rich and the poor. For me, the analogy is kind of getting on an airplane. You can see it all happening. Uh, well, you squeeze people close together in that case. Um, and, um, and, and then there's this contagion problem that when, when we see assholes, we catch the disease, it spreads like a common cold. So in some ways our, our, oh, and then we communicate online rather we have eye contact right now. When you don't have eye contact, there's a bunch of evidence that we have less empathy for people and it makes people nasty. So, um, if you're spending all day on Slack, even working with people who are in the same uh, space as you and you don't get up and look them in the eye, that causes problems. So in some ways, we are creating workplaces that are almost perfect Petri dishes for assholes. And you kind of got to remember to have some empathy and human contact and eye contact. And maybe we could bring down the problem a little bit. In a way, there's something kind of helpful about that. We're not necessarily all such bad people. No. It's just it's just the environment. It's and we always need to cope with the it. system I'm game. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, thank you so much thank for you. taking the time to talk to us. This is thank fascinating. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. It kind of sounds like we're all assholes. <laughs> <laughs> we all in certain times can exhibit asshole behavior um, and that the conditions of the workplace make that very likely and that you're not necessarily working with someone who is this thing, but you're in a situation with somebody who's acting like this thing. And I think that's helpful when dealing with these people. Yeah, like one person's asshole is another person's perfectly fine colleague. And I think realizing that we are that way to other people can maybe help us develop a little bit of empathy for them as one coping strategy. Like they're not a monster. They're just in a situation that's making them act this way. Or at least it makes it more manageable to deal with the situation if it's not this person with this personality type, but somebody who's just acting away for a specific reason. I also thought maybe the whole idea of leaving your job seems a little extreme if we're going to think of assholes this way. Yeah, I agree. Now that we know how common it is and like how many different types of people you're almost guaranteed not to get along with at work, leaving seems impractical for every single job. Of course, if you're in a toxic workplace, one of your only solutions for really making your life better may be to leave. Um, And we did a whole episode on toxic workplaces, which you can check out if that's your situation. But short of that, you should probably try and find some coping strategies Yeah, and I think one of those coping strategies is understanding that you are going to be in situations at work with people who you don't like, and sometimes people aren't going to be nice to each other, and you can't control other people, so you need to learn how to deal with those situations yourself or change the way you see it. It's kind of like therapy. For free. It's free therapy. You're welcome. (laughs) And now it's time for Half Big Takes. Half Big Takes. You can leave us a voicemail and let us know what your half-baked take is by calling 212-617-0166. 
This week, we had a caller follow up on my half-baked take from last week about how men don't know the difference between skirts and dresses. Uh, hi, Rebecca. Hi, Francesca. I was uh, calling the uh, response uh, to your uh, dresses versus skirts uh, issue. I do think there's a male equivalent of that uh, confusion or problem, which is that sometimes I come to work wearing a jacket or a blazer, and uh, I'm told, nice suit, uh, which is a very nice compliment. But uh, sometimes I think to myself, well, I'm not, I didn't come to work wearing a suit. I just wore a jacket. Uh, so, you know, it seems like some people, men and women, uh, don't really think about or know the difference between a, a suit and a jacket, I guess. Um, but it's 2017, so, you know, you can't really be super upset about that. Anyway, thanks for your great podcast. Uh, I just thought I'd call in and relate to that. Um, keep up your great work. Bye. This is on point. He He's totally right. This is the exact male equivalent of skirts versus dresses. I didn't really know. So now I know. Thank you. You didn't know. I mean, I feel like I kind of knew, but I'm sure I've, I have made that mistake. Like maybe I've said suit jacket. Is suit jacket a thing you can say? I don't know. Call yeah, the, fa- the fact Help that we us. don't know shows that um, we have reached complete gender equality when it comes to ignorance about clothing items. Um, also, I have found a lot of men who do know the difference between skirts and dresses over the past week. So I'm I'm sticking with my happy take. I still think it's a problem, but it's a problem for men and for women. Becca, what take do you have that is too hot for primetime? I recently rode an Amtrak train. And so this is where that take comes from. And my half-baked take is that everything should have assigned seats. Mm. Um, When you are boarding an Amtrak train that is at all crowded, which most of them are very crowded, it is so stressful to try to find seats, especially if you're with another person. And... It's just like, why aren't there assigned seats like on an airplane? I don't understand. And technology should be able to solve any problems you can think of about this. But it's not just the train that I think this would be better for. I was wondering if this went beyond transportation. It does. Have you been to the movie theaters with assigned seats? They're usually the fancy ones with like reclining seats. It's great. You don't have to get to the movies a half an hour early to make sure you don't sit in the front row. You know where your seat is. You get to sit there. I don't understand why this is not just everywhere. Yeah, they should put you in charge and you should reorganize yes, society. I'm leaving my career in journalism. Going on an assignment. On a crusade. crusade. It just, it's so, have you ever been on Amtrak and tried to find a seat together with yes, someone? Yes, it's terrible. And it's totally terrible. rude. Yeah. And movies, like I prefer going to movies on my own for the specific reason that it's so hard to find two good seats next to each other, but you can find one seat. Yeah, always. All right, Francesca, what's your half big take? Mine is that people, and it's it's apropos for this week's episode, I think people overuse the word nice. I'm so on board with this. Oh, really? So Okay, so I think people say nice when they just mean someone is kind of polite or doesn't aggressively get in your face about things. But I think that nice is actually really a high compliment. Like, you should call somebody nice when... They're someone who genuinely cares about other people. That should be the criteria. And I often hear people that I work with described as nice. And I'm like, are they nice or are they just sort of well-spoken or polite or, you know, they get to things on time? People use it and I I hear a little bit of an insult. Yeah. It's like, oh, she's nice. Nice, that means like you lack other qualities. I actually think being genuinely nice is pretty hard and it's it's a quality I think we should treasure. 
when I was in high school, I used to say, just because she's nice doesn't mean she's cool, which I think gets at this problem. I realize it's kind of a flip thing to say, but whatever, you're a teen. But it does get at that thing where it's like, nice is not, nice is kind of meaningless at this point. It's lost its meaning. Yeah, that's a little bit of a different point than mine. Okay. I mean, well, we I think, both have feelings about nice. I think nice has lost. I think we should restore the meaning okay. to nice. Make nice nice again. This has been Half Baked Takes. Half Baked Takes. Thanks for listening to our show. You can find me on Twitter at Francesca Today. And I'm at RZ Greenfield. And if you want more of us, go subscribe to our newsletter at Bloomberg.com slash newsletters. Um, if you have thoughts, tweet at us or call and leave a voicemail at 212-617-0166. If you like this show, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and rate and review and subscribe. We read every single one. This show was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. Head of podcast is now me. See you next week. Do I have to do the acting again? No. Do you think, Liz, the acting again? Okay. Acting? I'm really good at acting. <laughs> do, 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 do. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.